Good morning. There may be some stragglers coming in from Phil's class. Uh, if you're not attending that class, you should consider it. Uh, Phil is a he's a sharp guy, and I and uh, Ecclesiastes is a very uh, intriguing book to study. So uh, that class that's going on between the worship and the teaching hours one you should strongly consider. Have you ever? had the experience of talking to someone about the gospel and found that the simple truth you're trying to share with them about Jesus Christ has gotten lost under a pile of complicated and confusing questions or challenges raised by the person with whom you're speaking. If you've ever been in one of those conversations, you'll find this passage today instructive. (laughs) And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ... Perhaps you've been on the other side of one of those conversations where your complicated questions and challenges have either intentionally or unintentionally ensured that you didn't truly reckon with the message of the gospel. If so, then this passage is definitely pertinent to you. Uh, The truth that Paul proclaims here with crystal clarity is a simple, straightforward, life-and-death proposition. And he steadfastly in this passage refuses to allow anything to sidetrack him from that proposition. Uh, This morning we'll see the culmination, the logical conclusion of everything that Paul has been talking about ever since specifically chapter 1, verse 18. Beginning at that point and going through chapter 3, verse 20, where we're ending up today, Paul, on behalf of God, has been presenting the bad news that must be heard and accepted in order for a person to truly understand and believe the good news concerning Jesus Christ. The bad news comes in the form of an uncompromising indictment against all mankind. In Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we saw that Paul declared all men to be condemned because even though they have all received the clear knowledge of God through that which has been made, men suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and they replaced God's truth with a lie of their own contrivance. So God gave men over in their own devices, to follow their degrading passions and depraved mind. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul switched from third person to second person, from they to you, and he extended his indictment to all who pass judgment on others, saying that when you judge others, you condemn yourself, because you are guilty of doing the very things that you condemn in that other person. He concluded that whether men have sinned without having access to the law of God or whether they have sinned being under the law of God, their sin still condemns them all. Last week in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul focused his indictment on the one who bears the name Jew, speaking again in the second person singular to to one prototypical Jew, Paul asked and answered several questions intended to convict the Jews of their hypocritical self-righteousness 
and to dispense with their arrogant belief that they had some kind of inherent advantage over Gentiles when it comes to their relationship with God. Paul declared that rather than being guides to the blind and lights to the darkness as they considered themselves to be, they were in fact the blind leading the blind. And they were the cause for the blaspheming of God's name among the Gentiles. Now here's where we're going to go this morning. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, Paul continues and finishes out this indictment against all mankind that he started in 118. He moves in this passage to the first person, we. So in the course of this extended indictment, he's gone from they to you to we. And finally, in verses 19 to 20, he'll declare that, that God's accusation against mankind applies to all the world. First, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, he anticipates a handful of questions from his Jewish readers that are designed to deflect attention from the real issue. And he summarily responds to each of those questions. Now, these questions have a lot in common with the kinds of questions that some men still pose today in an effort to dodge the issue of their own depravity and condemnation in the eyes of God. As we hear the questions that Paul is going to pose here, our tendency to is, is, is to expect very complicated answers. <laughs> but Paul's responses here are anything but complicated. They're strikingly brief and just as strikingly simple. In fact, when Paul gets to the last of the questions here, he doesn't even justify it with a direct answer. We should pay close attention to how Paul handles these questions. For unbelievers, his answers cut through their foolish protests and go right to the heart of every man's desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for believers, the manner in which Paul deals with these evasive questions should demonstrate to us, among other things, the importance of not allowing ourselves to be sidetracked in proclaiming the gospel. The importance of remaining focused on that which God has declared rather than becoming bogged down in that which man has declared. And for all men, Paul's approach here convicts us that we must humbly subject our fallen logic to that which God has revealed. Our logic doesn't impress God at all. The most profound truths that we must acknowledge about God and about ourselves in order to be saved and to walk by faith as believers are actually very simple and straightforward. The reason we feel so compelled to make them complex is simply because our sin nature is resistant to the truth. Now let's look at these questions. The first question that that Paul raises sort of uh, in proxy for his Jewish reader is, what advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit is the circumcision? In verses 1 and 2. Now Paul had just said very forcefully in the preceding verses that the Jews were as guilty of violating the law of God as the Gentiles. Their presumption 
that they were guides to the blind and lights to those who were in darkness was a lie. The fact was that, as I said, they were the blind leading the blind. Being bearers of the law of God was no advantage to them because they didn't keep the law of God. And physical circumcision was no advantage because they were not circumcised in their hearts. Now, in light of this indictment against the Jews, Paul now puts out on the table this first misguided question that he anticipates on their part. If all that's true that you've said, Paul, then what advantage has the Jew over the Gentile? What benefit is circumcision? Why bother? Now, at first glance, Paul's response seems to be exactly what the Jews would expect. But there's a twist here for his Jewish readers. His answer is that the advantage of the Jew is great in every respect. And he says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when we read that statement, our next thought is, okay, if that's first, what's second and third? (laughs) But Paul wasn't getting set here to list a bunch of advantages. The Jews had indeed been granted many blessings from the hand of God that should have put them in an enviable position in terms of their relationship with God. They had the law, the prophets, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. They had a whole lot more to inform them about the character of God than the Gentiles had, right? There were many advantages to being a Jew that Paul could have mentioned, but he mentions only one. He says, first and foremost, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The word oracles means the utterances of God. That is the verbal propositional revelation that comes from God to man. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, many of you know it. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture comes from God. It is the Word of God, and it is the words of God. Just before Jesus came in the the flesh, or during the entire time before He came, the Jews were the sole mediators of this propositional revelation of God contained in the Old Testament. The oracles or the utterances of God through His prophets were the one and only means by which God, uh, men could come to know God more precisely, more specifically, than He had revealed Himself in nature. And the Jews were the arbiters or mediators of that knowledge, of those living oracles of God. In chapter 3, verse 2, the word entrusted is critically important. This is the passive form of the verb to believe. And in this form, it means to be entrusted with. God entrusted to Israel His revelation concerning Himself, and He called them to proclaim that revelation to the rest of the world. Contrary to the way the Jews saw things, Their foremost advantage lay not in their position before God, but in their assignment from God. Let me say that again, because it's important here. The foremost advantage of the Jews lay not in a superior position before God, but in a superior assignment from God. The Jews believed that their very possession of the Word of God, of the law, inherited 
uh, it inherently warranted a special treatment from God. But as Paul said in Romans 2.13, it isn't the hearing of the law that makes a man just before God. It's the doing of the law. And Israel's special calling is the people to whom God had specifically revealed himself was not merely to know and to do the law, but to share the knowledge of God. In Exodus 19, immediately before God delivered to Israel the Ten Commandments, he told them they were called by him to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6 They were to be the mediators of the revelation of God to a pagan and godless world. But Israel was like Jonah. In fact, Jonah is, you want a prototypical Jew, according to the way the Bible presents it, look at Jonah. They preferred to hoard the knowledge of God unto themselves so that they could hold themselves up as a special people among all the peoples of the earth. Their refusal to humble themselves as demanded by the very word of God that had been entrusted to them sealed their condemnation even further. And the second question that Paul anticipates from his readers is in verse 3. Does Jewish unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And when Paul uses the wording, if some did not believe, uh, it might appear that he's backing off of his absolute universal indictment against all Jews and all Gentiles. And he's saying here that only some Jews were guilty of unbelief. <laughs> but he'll shortly make it clear that just as with everything he's been saying, he's talking about all Jews and all Gentiles. Indeed, he'll declare that he's talking about all the world. The question here is, does the unbelief of Jews prove God to be unfaithful? God chose Israel, didn't he? He gave the law and the prophets and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices to Israel, didn't he? If all of that wasn't sufficient to produce faith in his chosen people, then isn't it God who failed and not men? Isn't it his faithfulness that's at issue and not the faithfulness of the Jews? God made covenant promises to Israel that cannot be fulfilled if the Jews don't have faith. So isn't he obligated to make them have faith? <laughs> now this sounds a lot to me like a protest I hear from some people today. Why didn't God just see to it that we didn't sin? Doesn't he have the power to do that? In essence, the question attempts to blame God for our sin. If God is all-powerful, but he didn't stop us from sinning, then how can he be called faithful? Paul's answer here is very forceful and, again, very concise. May it never be. That's the strongest negative available in the Greek language. It's roughly equivalent to saying, perish the thought. Such a thing is unthinkable. And then Paul says, rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. The issue here is God's faithfulness to keep his promises. 
And in this context, specifically his promises to the Jews. Paul said, if every man who ever lived turns out to be a liar, which, by the way, he already declared to be the case in 125, God will be found to be true. His promises will not fail. He will never violate his own character and fail to carry out his own promises. It is not conceivable because it violates who God is. When we examine the four major covenants recently, this should have been crystal clear. Israel's chronic unbelief does not negate the faithfulness of God to be true to His nature and His promises, and it does not negate any of those promises. He'll keep them all. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, When we are faithless, He is faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. After saying, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, Paul adds, as it is written. (laughs) And we pointed out before that that, every time he says that, he's about to refer to something in the Old Testament. And here, the passage to which he goes is Psalm 51, which was David's prayer of contrition after he was convicted by the prophet Nathan for the sins of adultery, deceit, and murder. And the specific part of David's prayer, by the way, we talked about that incident in the last two messages. The specific part of David's prayer to which Paul goes is the part where David agrees with God that God is justified when he speaks and blameless when he judges. And what reason in that psalm did David give for believing that God was justified in judging him? Just one reason. Because David's sin against God was worthy of condemnation. It was worthy of God's righteous judgment. David doesn't play any games with regard to who is responsible for his sin or whether his sin is is worthy of God's wrath. He simply says God is justified when he speaks and he is blameless when he judges. And I should point out that Paul is going to later address the question of God's faithfulness to his calling and promises toward Israel when he gets to Romans 9 through 11. But at this point, his purpose is simply to put aside these questions that are designed to deflect attention from the real issue so he can get back to that real issue. And that issue is the universal sinfulness and lostness of every man. Paul proceeds next to ask, to, to ask and respond to two questions in verses 5 through 8. The second of these two questions is in two parts, back to back. So it's really three questions. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, binds these questions together into one overriding question, and I think he's absolutely right. In today's way of speaking, we might summarize these questions with just this one. Since God glorifies himself through our sin, how can he judge us for our sin? In At the beginning of uh, verse 5, or in verse 5, He says, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he quickly adds, I'm speaking in human terms. The assumption behind actually all of these questions in 5 through 8 is that the end justifies the means. That is, the outcome, which is 
the glorification of God justifies the means to that outcome, which is our sin. And at the heart of these accusatory questions is the same implication that was in that last question, that God is actually the one accountable for our sin. Casting the blame back on God for our sin is a, actually an ancient approach that goes back to the very first sin, right? <laughs> After eating the forbidden fruit, Adam said to God, That woman whom you gave me, she's the one who handed me the fruit. Men have been trying to blame God for their sin ever since. It's amazing how often they blame God through their spouses for their sin. The first version of this question is in verse 5 with Paul's response in verse 6. And I'll call this misguided question number 3, take (laughs) 1. Isn't it unjust for God to judge us for our unrighteousness since he uses our unrighteousness to demonstrate his righteousness? Paul is careful to say parenthetically here, I'm speaking in human terms. He wants to make sure his audience knows he's not endorsing the heretical position that he's presenting here. I should say that he's exposing. Uh, James Boyce's paraphrase of this question seems fitting to me. He says, if our unrighteousness or sin is the necessary background against which God displays his wisdom, love, and mercy in salvation, then how can God judge us for what therefore obviously has a good end? In other words, for him. Paul's answer is again very simple and very forceful. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? How can an unjust God judge the world? Now, this would appear at first glance to be a circular argument. If God were unjust, then he couldn't judge the world justly, so he must be just. But Paul's very succinct response comes with some fundamental assumptions. And they're assumptions that proceed from what he's already established in the last couple of chapters. Back in 1, 18 to 20, when Paul first launched into this indictment of mankind, he said, God's invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen by all through that which has been made. God's justness, his righteousness, is among the invisible attributes of God. Part of his divine nature. And God's justness, quite simply, has already been established for all to behold. Even his wrathful response to our sin demonstrates his righteousness. And for the Jews, who had the fullness of God's revelation of his character in the law and the prophets and the books of wisdom of the Old Testament, The justness or the righteousness of God in judging his creation was beyond well-established, wasn't it? For a Jew to pose such a challenge against God was an unthinkable arrogance. So Paul dispenses with this question categorically and without embellishment. God will judge, and he will judge justly. The fact that God's righteousness is demonstrated through his judgment of our unrighteousness in no way absolves us 
of our accountability to God for our sin and it in no way implicates God for our sin. As my friend Phil Barrett pointed out to us Wednesday morning, the Jews were very fond of the idea of God judging the world. (laughs) But they pictured themselves standing behind the throne of judgment, not in front of it. Their way of looking at it was that the world would have to answer to God's judgment because the world did not have the special standing before God that the Jews had. But Paul says here that God's wrath against the unrighteousness of the Jews demonstrates the righteousness of God. The Jews' perceived advantage with God is just smoke and mirrors. And the second injustifies the means challenge with which Paul quickly dispenses is presented in verses 7 and 8. And this challenge actually comes in the form of two questions back to back before Paul says anything in response to the questions. So we're going to treat those as one. I'll call this misguided question take two and three. If God is glorified through my lie, why am I still judged? (laughs) Why not do even more evil that more good can come? I find it very telling that Paul and those associated with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel were being accused here of what we might refer to as antinomianism, of saying, in effect, it really doesn't matter how we behave because God's going to be glorified anyway. So why don't we sin all the more so God can be even more glorified? Paul says, we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say such things. If you're preaching grace in keeping with the word of God, some will accuse you of preaching that grace gives us a license to sin. But that most certainly is not what Paul is preaching, and it had better never be what any of us is preaching. The challenge to which Paul responds here is extreme. It doesn't merely excuse sin, it exalts sin. It purposes to establish that sinning is better than not sinning because our sin gives God even greater opportunity to glorify himself by showing how righteous he is. It's very significant that Paul doesn't even justify this line of questioning with an answer. He merely says of those who present such a challenge to God, their condemnation is just. The word translated condemnation simply means the sentence or punishment that befalls the one who does such a thing. He's saying that those who seek to justify their sin based on such an absurd argument get exactly what they deserve. Now later we'll see that Paul raises a similar question in Romans 6. And there he does just as he does here. He summarily dismisses it as utter foolishness. Now, these questions all have the effect of attempting to implicate God somehow in our sin. But God is not culpable for our sin. We are. So Paul doesn't waste any time here getting back to that very critical point. He finishes this list of questions in verse 9 with one final question, and this is the one he answers in detail. What then? Are we better than they? 
Are we Jews better than those Gentiles? Now, this question harkens back to the one that Paul posed in verse 1 when he said, what advantage has the Jew? But instead of talking about effect, advantage, he's talking here about cause. Are we better than they? This is the real question to which his Jewish readers should have come based on all that he's said thus far. It's actually right where Paul wanted them. It's the only, as I said, the only question he spends much time answering. He begins his answer to this critical question with what is, again, a very concise response. He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. Not at all. <laughs> it's a beautifully concise way for Paul to launch into this response. And it's a hearty slap in the face to the self-righteous Jews. To borrow the very pithy words of my brother Bob Deffenbaugh, Paul is decimating the smug superiority of the Jewish Christians. He spent a lot of time doing that in his epistles. (laughs) Aren't we Jews better than those nasty Gentiles? Paul says, not even a little. And then he quickly adds, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He's saying, in effect, you guys haven't been paying attention, have you? If you had, you'd have figured out by now that I've already said over and over that you are no better in the eyes of God than the Gentiles that you so love to despise. His whole argument up to this point has meticulously and systematically made the case that all men are sinners and deserve the righteous judgment of God. Every man is included, Jew and Gentile, those who have the law and those who don't, those who are physically physically circumcised and those who aren't, those who zealously commit grievous sins and those who smugly judge them while in reality being guilty of the same sins. But Paul doesn't stop there. He makes it exceedingly clear that God's answer to this question is exactly the same as Paul's. Again, he inserts the little phrase, as it is written. And then he cites a series of Old Testament passages from several Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah, all of which make the same point that he's just made. The Jews to whom he was talking might not have been so keen on the idea that Paul's words were authoritative for them. But Paul knew they'd be hard-pressed to say that God's words from the Old Testament were not authoritative for them. Now, the verses that Paul cites here are presented in four sets as I see it. First, in verses 10 and 11, he declares the universality of man's unrighteousness, that is, that there is none righteous. Then in verses 13 and 14, he declares that men are condemned by their words. In verses 15 to 17, that men are condemned by their violence. And finally, in verse 18, he declares man's most essential sin, the failure to fear God. In verses 10 through 12, 
Paul quotes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3, which say essentially the same thing. In these two Psalms of David, King David declares that as God looks down from heaven upon men to see if there are any who have understanding or any who seek after him, what he finds is that there is none. None who does good, none who is righteous, none who seeks after God, not even one. Now this passage was raised this morning in the worship. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul quotes from at least three different Psalms. Douglas Moo's excellent commentary on Romans points out that these two verses follow the sinful speech of men from the point of origin to the point of exit, from the throat to the tongue to the lips to the mouth. God declares that men's words from start to finish are filled with deception, poison, cursing, and bitterness. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus made a very big issue of the words that men speak, right? In Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37, Jesus said that man's words are the fruit by which man will be judged. He said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he said, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. James, in chapter 3 of his powerful epistle, speaking to believers, says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship or like a tiny flame that sets a forest ablaze. And he says in verse 6 of James 3, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Wow. In verses 15 to 17 of Romans 3, Paul turns from the deception and cursing and bitterness that proceed from men's mouths to the violence that characterizes men's hearts and actions. The nature of fallen men is a violent nature. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but... Finally, in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Back in Romans one twenty-one, this is where the downward spiral began. Even though they knew God, even though men knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. The essential sin of man is the failure to fall down before Almighty God in humble, grateful, submitted worship and obedience. The failure to fear Him as the one from whom alone proceeds either blessing or cursing, either good or harm. The failure to see our own wretchedness in light of His glory and His holiness. That is where all sin has its root. And that is the failure of every man. Finally, in verses 19 to 20 
of this chapter, Paul gets to the real purpose of the law, that every mouth may be closed. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Douglas Moo says that Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser, and I think he's right. What he means is that Paul's focus here is on the Jews, but that which he declares impacts the Gentiles by default. He's saying the law cannot make a man righteous and was not, in fact, intended to make a man righteous. And if law-keeping could not make the Jews righteous, then what of the Gentiles whose only revelation of God was that which they had in nature? Clearly, those who were without the law must stand condemned as well. So I'm going to put this slide up and ask you, how does, how does this work? Back in 2.13, Paul said, Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Then in 3.20, he says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That looks like a contradiction, right? First he says those who do the law will be justified. Then he says no one will be justified by doing the law. But everything that Paul has said since chapter 1, verse 18 explains how he got from that first statement to that second statement because his answer is, no one does the law. The law was never intended by God to make men righteous. It was intended to show men that they are unrighteous. It was intended to close every mouth and to leave every man accountable to God with nothing to say for themselves. Paul will have a lot more in this, to say in this epistle about the condemning purpose of God's law. <laughs> Indeed, in chapter 7, he will say not only that the law doesn't make us righteous, but that our response to the law is to sin more, not less. Folks, if we're at all honest about what's in our hearts, we should readily agree with God's assessment of our wretched and lost condition apart from Jesus Christ. But as we read these exceedingly forceful and uncompromising words, our tendency is to leap to our own defense and to mankind's defense. How often have you said people say, oh, but I know people who aren't like that at all. I know people who don't even believe in Jesus, who are good and merciful and sacrificial and giving and loving. Or maybe we say, I might struggle with Deceit and bitterness at times, but I'm not a violent person. Surely this doesn't apply to me. But the problem is that we don't know our own hearts. But God does. We have no idea how the depravity in our hearts is capable of manifesting itself. We who live in sheltered, comfortable lives, especially in America... We have no idea how we would respond if our perceived control over our prosperity 
and security and over the well-being of the people that we love were as visibly threatened as it is daily for some people in this world. But here's the deal. God does know our hearts. And he declares them to be damnably corrupt. A dear friend shared with me recently how he had been thinking a lot about the teaching of Confucius, that the way for a man to become good is first to be good in his heart. Then when his heart is good, his behavior will follow. So with that understanding, the correct pursuit for men is the goodness of the heart. Now that would be a very useful approach to pursuing a life of virtue except for one very critical problem. What if left to his own devices, man's heart is not capable of good? What if man's heart is fundamentally evil? And what if man can do nothing to change that fact? This is one of the most fundamental distinctions between biblical Christianity and every other religion that exists. Because man-made religions are all founded on the notion that men can and must achieve goodness or righteousness in themselves in order to be acceptable to God or to reach oneness with the universal essence or whatever it is that a given religion declares to be the, the highest state of man. See, there has to be some seed of goodness in man to begin with, something that each man and woman can nurture in order to move toward even greater good in his heart and his actions. But God's word says all of that is a pernicious lie. His word says that men are not basically or mostly or even slightly good. The hearts of men are desperately wicked, all of them. Now, here's a very quick history of what God says about the heart of man from the Old Testament and the New. And this is just a small sampling of passages pertinent to this. Just before the flood, Genesis 6, 5, God looked down upon the world and he saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Is that unclear? Just after the flood... The Lord smelled the soothing aroma of Noah's offering after he had left the ark. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Wait! You mean the flood didn't cure the disease of man's evil heart? God says no. Present tense. (laughs) The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. When Israel was about to cross over into the land of promise, God said to them, remember through Moses, do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And then in verse 24, Moses says, it's not just God who says that. (laughs) You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. In Joshua 24, after Israel had conquered most of the land of promise, Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's holy, and you're not. The prophet Isaiah, during the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah, said, for all of us, 
all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on thy name who arouses himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. That sounds just like Romans 1, 18 through 320, doesn't it? And then lastly, and I could put a whole lot more up here, but this one's pretty strong. The words of Stephen, the deacon, <laughs> knowing that he was just about to be stoned to death by the Jewish authorities for saying these words, boldly declared, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And of course, you can add to all those passages and many others the words we've been seeing from Paul in Romans 1 through 3. The only assessment about ourselves that matters at all is God's assessment. It's all that we need to know about ourselves. And it is the only trustworthy declaration about ourselves. God says, none of us is righteous, not even one. The most fundamental call that God is making in this powerful passage in Romans to every man and woman and to every boy and girl is shut up, close your mouths because you have no defense and nothing to offer. Abandon your fatally false ideas about your righteousness and accept what I, God, am saying through my word about your hopelessly sinful condition. Because if you don't, you will perish and your sin will still be on your own shoulders. If you do not humble yourself to accept God's assessment of your sinful condition, you will bear the eternal penalty for your sin instead of Christ bearing it in your place. This is life and death at the highest possible level. If you're here today and you're trusting in anything about yourself to make you acceptable to God, then you must cast those thoughts aside and trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only righteous one. If you haven't trusted in his sacrifice in your place as that which alone makes you righteous, and clean in the eyes of our holy God, as my brother Mark showed us this morning, then God sets before you this day life and death. Abandon any thought you have that you can offer anything to God because dead men don't have anything to offer. Believe in Christ alone and you will have eternal life. For us who do believe in Jesus Christ and belong to him, which I believe is most of us in this room, 
these words continue to be critically and foundationally important to us every single day of our lives. We must never think that our standing in the eyes of God has anything to do with the righteousness of our own. Any movement in that direction is catastrophic to our spiritual lives and destructive to the body of Christ. We're prone to think that way, but we must not permit ourselves to do so. To the extent that we do think that way, that we think we have something to bring to the table, we are self-deceived hypocrites, self-righteous, legalistic, judgmental hypocrites. The one and only thing that will ever qualify any of us to be used by God to rebuke or correct another brother or sister in love is our crystal clear certainty that we are as guilty before God as the person we are correcting. There's no room in the Christian life for one ounce, one molecule, one atom of self-righteousness. No room at all. We have no righteousness of our own. And praise God, we can take no credit at all for the gift of righteousness that we have been given through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, these words that Paul uh, sets before us are powerful. They are uncompromising. They are simple. And yet, Lord, this world finds a million ways to kill them by the death of a thousand qualifications. Uh, the, the world is bent on the idea that it has something of worth in and of itself, that men and women bring something to the table. But we don't. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're just lost and dead in our sin. And that while we were lost, Jesus died and paid the penalty that we could never pay. We are saved by grace through faith. And that, uh, that salvation is a gift from you. Or to pray that whoever is here, if there's any here who don't know you, that they would cast aside any thought of self and they would cling to Christ as their only righteousness. I pray for us as believers, Lord, that we would, I pray especially for this body, but for all believers, that we would not be characterized by self-righteousness. It's, it is a poison to our walk with you and poison to one another. May we always know, Lord, what we deserve. And may we always know that all that you've given us in Christ is pure grace.